Get down here right now. I said right now, young man. Right, I'll count to three. One, two... Mum, I'm 30 years old. I'm doing the talking now, sunshine. What the hell do you think you're doing? Do you think I want some drug to survive? Do you think I even want to survive without you? You're loved, Jamie. And I want you to feel how I feel. If there's a chance that this girl is yours, then you go and find her. You put all this Layla crap behind you and you jump in with both feet. And you pour every part of you into being her dad. Your time, your energy, your love. You pour it all in until you don't even know where you end and she begins. And you hope that'll be enough. That they'll be happy. And that you never, ever have to see your daughter in a place like this. Now, I've got fish fingers for tea. Are you coming or what? back to Hooing Company. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. Thanks to technical difficulties beyond my control, I did not get to take part in our conversation with this month's guest, who just happens to be the multi-talented Helen Goldwyn. Helen and Brent chat about the early days with Big Finish, the move from acting to writing to directing, and of course, Doctor Who. Then we move to her pick of the month, the genre-blending 10-parter jointly produced by Sky and NBC, You, Me, and the Apocalypse. Now, Since I wasn't present for the interview, I'll be joining Brent after for a quick chat. But before that, we'll take a few moments to remember Terrence Dix, who sadly passed away earlier this month. And that's coming up right after this. Rigor mortis. What is that? He's been dead for hours. But that is not possible. He was in his room. Not Reuben. But he was. I saw him. The chameleon factor, sometimes called lycanthropy. Leela, I've made a terrible mistake. I thought I'd lock the enemy out. Instead, I've locked it in with us. So, Brent, we're just going to take just a moment um, and just uh, to remember Terrence Dix, who passed away in the end of August. Mm-hmm. Did you um, did you ever get a chance to meet him? I did not. I, You know, I did. Um, when I went to my very first Doctor Who convention uh, in 2000 and <clears throat> whenever it was, um, Terrence Dix was one of the one of the last guests I think they announced, and uh, I think I was more even though I was going to meet Paul McGann, you know, my doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was the most excited about Terrence Dix because I'm a writer and I like writers and I respect writers. And to be in the man's presence, uh, knowing full well what he did, uh, even though he was not a part of my childhood, it was it was an honor. It was a, an absolute honor. And I, I went and tried to find my video interview with him from a, a, a very early episode of um, Gallifrey Pirate Radio, and it is nowhere to be found. And I'm not 100% sure why that is. Did you read his books growing up as a kid? Yeah, I did. Um I was going to say that uh, that was not really a great way to wake up that morning. Uh, no. But, 
to millions of kids, including myself, he was a reading to a reason to read books. Because he must have novelized over half of the target range, I think. He wrote a ton of them. He really did, yeah. Yeah, and his style was so easy to read, too. It, it wasn't simplistic, but his books and his prose always had a nice flow. And uh, even in college, between classes, I would go to my car. I'd have like an hour or two to kill. Um, so instead of going home, I'd go to my car and I'd just read a Target book, read a, a Doctor Who book, and I would say 9 out of 10 were from him. That's really cool. Uh, one of my goals, and I've been slowly collecting all the Target novelizations, but one of my goals is to eventually have all of them and read them from start to finish. And um, I thought for sure, I think I was I had a day off when, when the news broke. I mean, obviously the news broke days, if not weeks, after he actually passed away. Uh, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take the afternoon and I'm just going to read a Target novelization. But I I don't have time, as much time as I'd like to read, so I decided to celebrate by watching one of his episodes. Did you watch one of his episodes in, in memory? Yeah, and you know what's weird is um, I have a bag that I take with me to work every day and I have, you know, pens and that sort of stuff in there, my glasses. Um but I'll have like a book in there or or an iPad or something to do um, on breaks and that kind of thing. And it just happened so the morning that I found out he passed away, in my bag was the novelization of The Deadly Assassin, which was Terrence Dix did the book. Well, that's cool. So, yeah, it's weird. And um, But that night, I thought, you know, I got to watch something. So it was horror fang rock. <laughs> Watched the whole thing that night. <laughs> Same here, same here. Uh, I think I was, I had it on, and, and my wife came in. She's like, "Oh, it's Horror Fang Rock." <laughs> She's like, "I've seen this four times." <laughs> <laughs> For whatever reason, it's sort of my comfort classic Doctor Who episode, that Carnival and Monsters. Um, but I, I frequently have that one on, and she'll sit in. She's like, "Oh, this, this is what's going to happen next." <laughs> so. <laughs> We haven't watched much classic Who together, but you know I can't say that I haven't exposed her to the the good stuff. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of quite a good uh, number of of tributes to Terrence on on many of the podcasts. I mean, just just the fact that he was trending on Twitter that day, and um, you know, I, I'm I feel very privileged to be associated with many Doctor Who people via social media. Um, uh, or, or follow a number of folks who obviously Terrence touched their lives, but particularly the writers, and just to see their memories and um, recollections and kind of odes and, and um, you know, Toby Hiddock's obituary for him. And, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Reality Bomb did a, a just a fantastic episode tribute to him. And, uh, of course, the Doctor Who podcast did a really good one as well. Mm-hmm. Um uh, two minute time lord had eric stadnik on sharing his thoughts and it's funny because i i i don't know how to um i'm not gonna write eulogies hopefully i don't have to write eulogies and uh memorializing somebody's i find difficult and i thought you know who would be really good to get to help us with this would be eric stadnik and of course uh chip chip had the same idea <laughs> and, and good on him for it as well yeah, Eric did a, an excellent job. So yeah, he he, did. he will be missed, and and that's the thing too is you know he's constantly going to be honored uh, because those books are still out there and people are still going to be reading and it's going to be affecting uh, all all future generations of Doctor Who fans, especially the readers. And now here's my interview with the absolutely wonderful Helen Goldwyn. Not the real Marie Antoinette, of course. Of course. Am I not the very image of that lovely queen? Am I not radiant? Oh, I, I wouldn't know. I, I would know about irradiated, however. Pardon? A harmless disturbance of the praxis field around the joints, typical of an overcranked automaton. And invisible to the human eye. You interest me, Doctor. I flatter myself that I can be mildly diverting on a good day. Doctor. Are you saying this Marie Antoinette is an impersonator? An android. 
a mechanical, albeit of a far greater order of sophistication than the crude clockwork toys she controls. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. That was sarcasm. You are chipped for sarcasm. You are impressed? No, no, no. Tell me, what's a sarcastic android doing impersonating Marie Antoinette in Brighton? In 1833. Our guest this month is someone we've wanted to have on for a long time. Fans of Big Finish will no doubt know her very prolific work as an award-winning writer, an actor, a director, a singer, you name it. Helen Goldwyn, welcome to Who and Company. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to have been invited. Thanks, Brent. That's quite a lot of talents to list on your CV, and uh, <laughs> I know this is like choosing your favorite child, but of the singing, writing, acting, directing, which would you say is your first love? Well, my first love was, um, well, my first love actually was dancing, because I trained as a ballet dancer from the age of 12. I went to ballet school, and I thought I was going to be a ballet dancer, um, and then the singing and the acting kicked in at around 16. And then I realized that was more my thing. Plus, I had flat feet. (laughs) But yes, in recent years, writing and directing has become something that I feel very, very passionate about. And and I resisted both of them for a long time because writing always came very easily. uh, And acting was such a challenge. It was always so hard. It was like an uphill battle to get anywhere. But the writing really flowed very easily. And I was so contrary. I kept saying to myself, well, this can't be right. It feels too easy. You know, I'm clearly not meant to be a writer because it's it's not hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, and also I didn't like it when people defined me as a writer because I thought, well, no, I'm an actor. But of course, you can be all of them and you have to get to a certain age and a certain life experience before you can relax and just say it's okay it's okay to not just be one thing and i love it now i feel very privileged to be lots of different things within the industry oh that's great um so let's start with big finish you've been with big finish since way back in the beginning as an actress how did you get involved with them well it's a classic story of um nepotism no it's not it's a (laughs) classic story of knowing the right people because i did a a very small production of Macbeth um gosh I can't even remember the year and on that production was a fantastic actor and an adorable person called Barnaby Edwards uh who I just loved so much as a friend and colleague and uh and then about two or three years later he contacted me and said that he was directing um the the oh gosh the Oh, God, there's something of Lanyon Moore. I can't even remember oh, the title. Spectre. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. Yes, Lanyon Moore. Um, and would I, would I mind coming along and just doing one scene playing a, a hitchhiker? And I said, oh, all right. I didn't even know what it was. And turned up and was working with all these amazing people and, uh, you know, recognized a lot of the actors. Didn't know anything about Big Finish. Didn't know anything about the medium. And did my one scene and got horribly killed by alien goblins. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wrote to Gary Russell, um, emailed him afterwards, which is quite unusual for me. I'm terrible at pushing myself forward and, and being schmoozy. Uh, and I wrote to him, I said, I just had the most fantastic day. I loved every second of that job and I will do anything you want me to do. I said, I've got zero inhibitions. I will do any ridiculous voice that you would like. And uh, And so he very kindly believed in me and kept bringing me in to play aliens for years and years I <laughs> played various aliens uh, and then of course uh, I got the regular role in the Tomorrow People so um, yeah I've just been incredibly lucky to know the right people at the right time. Yeah Spectre of Lanyon Moore is a really great story. Uh, uh, what was it like to work with Nicholas Courtney? Oh he's, it was an absolute gentleman he was exactly as you would hope he would be very old school charming laconic you know twinkle in the eye and terribly polite and um but also a bit naughty (laughs) (laughs) Uh, if i remember rightly and uh, yeah it's just you don't know when you when you're in those situations quite how iconic some of these people are and it was only later on i understood oh that is the the brigadier that is someone who who did all those years of, of doctor who and is so important to the fans so yeah i was very lucky yeah, and I'm sure you've worked with uh, Colin Baker a lot over the years also. 
I have, yes. Initially as an actor, and in more recent times I've, I've had the honour of uh, directing him. And it is an honour because with all of the doctors, they know exactly what they're doing and really you don't have to direct them. It's more about picking up on the odd fluff here or there or, or kind of just tweaking the the dynamics of, of it for the for the scene or telling them to pitch it up a bit because there's going to be a, a loud sound, a sound effect. But you know, they know what they're doing and, and he is an utter genius at being the doctor and but also fantastic actor i think we we find it hard to separate the two don't we but <laughs> even not being the doctor he is a fantastic actor yeah well big finish started producing original titles a few years ago and one of those is the award-winning Ada girl can you tell us how that project came about and what it was like to write for it sure yes it was um well, obviously, Louise Jameson and I have been friends for a long, long time and uh, and collaborators as well. I wrote a one-woman play for her many years ago and and we've acted together and done all sorts. Uh, and she and David Richardson sat me down on a recording day in a separate room one day and pitched this idea to me about the air transport auxiliary pilots, the female pilots in World War II. And I said, oh, God, that sounds fantastic. What's it got to do with me? And David said, well, we would like you to produce it. And I thought, well, I'm, I am not a producer. And as far as I'm aware, producing is like the admin side of things, like organizing, getting people in the right place at the right time and doing the scheduling. And a lot of the stuff I have to do as a director anyway, but much more responsibility with the buck stops with you if you don't, if you don't mm-hmm. manage to achieve and so initially I said, oh, no, God, that's not my thing. Sorry. No, no, I, I'm not a producer. I'm a creative. You know, I do all that admin stuff because I love the creative bit that comes out of it. Uh, but they were very pushy and persuasive. and <laughs> <laughs> said, we're not doing it without you. You will produce it. And so I kind of had to shrug my shoulders and accept it. And then I finally learned, once I embarked upon it, that producing is incredibly creative and freeing and um exciting creatively because you not only uh, have a, a say in the whole concept but you then have an oversight of everybody else's scripts and you get to really shape the whole thing and um, yeah I mean it's one of the things that I'm most proud of in my life because I am massively over conscientious and of course we all did months and months of research but <laughs> way too much detail into it and um I think David Richardson also had said to me, oh, it won't be much work. It's really not that much work producing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, God, it nearly killed me. Yeah, it nearly killed me because I had because I had to write one as well. So I did have to do the same research as everybody else. Yeah, uh, yeah so that, that was what happened. Um, that was how I came to produce that one. So it was a real um, incredible learning experience for me. It's very different to what we normally do at Big Finish, and it's quite adult in its themes as well. Um, But of course, people who are interested in Doctor Who are mostly attracted to the historical element of it as well as the science fiction side. So, of course, we're satisfying that side of things for for our existing fans and hopefully expanding the listenership at Big Finish as well, you know, with a a brand new product. Mm Not to go back too far, but uh, you mentioned uh, the story you did with Louise Jameson, uh, Pulling Faces. Is that the one? That's you... right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had another listen to that again. I've heard it a couple of times. and, and uh, Okay. It's such a great story, and Louise does such a great job. Just good subject matter about somebody that's, uh, I don't know, how would you explain it as far as her character? I- well, I th- I hoped that she would represent, although she is playing a sort of faded celebrity in the play, I wanted her to re- represent all women of a certain age who feel that pressure from society and from the media to look and behave a certain way. I think we're in an era where we're worshipping the superficial. You know, we've got Love Island and we've got celebrities who are famous for looking a particular way and not for doing anything. And we've got our young people growing up taking selfies and obsessed with how they look and how people are perceiving them. And uh, uh, it's a pet hate of mine. I think it is contributing to the disintegration of our society. And so I wanted this play to represent 
every woman and and for this character to go on a journey where she is initially very influenced by all of that and for her to come to a, a place of self-discovery where she understands it's utterly irrelevant how old you look as long as you um, love yourself, as long as you behave in a positive um, way and, and you contribute to society and you, and you live your life the, the very best way you can. And, you know, there's a lot of drama written about that kind of thing, but it's, it's, and it's slightly permeating now into the mainstream, isn't it? We've got campaigns like Dove who are celebrating real women and, and there's a real campaign to stop airbrushing. So I'm hoping that the tide will turn eventually. So what inspired you to make the transition to becoming a director? Well, there's a saga. <laughs> <laughs> um, many, many different factors. One main one was becoming a parent. Um, and in fact, I started my family. I had my first son when I was 36, so relatively late. And I remember saying to an actor friend, I said, if I were to get a, like a sitcom now or a, like a fantastic TV break, I would probably sacrifice having children because I'd waited so long for a, a big break as an actor. So if it had happened in my mid-30s, I probably would have forfeited having children. I would have thought, OK, I'm going to be a TV star. <laughs> Actually, I, I felt so grateful that that wasn't happening for me. My, my acting career was getting harder and harder. I couldn't get auditions for anything. And, and in a way, that's, that's what enabled me to have my family because I was so ambitious and so driven, I, I really would have given it up for, I would have given up that family thing for, for career success. And once you have your family, then you think, oh no, this, <laughs> you know, nothing would have been worth sacrificing this. So yeah, I had my first baby and, and I tried to carry on acting for a year and it cost so much money to go to auditions and nothing was working out for me. And then I sort of started writing and um, and doing other drama-related jobs that were more in the corporate world. And and then I was writing my songs and I had my musical theatre trio and that uh, ended horribly with a, a legal battle with one of the other women in the group. Ooh. That's a whole other saga. <laughs> um, and because she totally destroyed that uh, that project, she walked away and, and smashed it, really, uh, I kind of spent a year thinking, what what do I want to do with my life? And so I wrote to Big Finish and said, I'm unexpectedly available, and would you consider me as a director? And then Nick Briggs wrote back and said, why didn't we think of that? What a great idea. <laughs> and if I hadn't had this awful legal um, battle with this other person and, and been so utterly destroyed and, and distressed by it, I wouldn't have been back to the starting block I wouldn't have ever had the nerve I think to approach Big Finish in that way so out of the out of the ashes of one creative project comes a whole new career so yeah I'm grateful really that it, it worked out that way so did you have to train to be a director or did it just come to you naturally by watching others over the years I had directed quite a lot of theatre and uh, I hadn't trained as a director but obviously I've been in innumerable productions and and always had a director's inclination uh, and, and instinct um, so I had directed a lot of my own writing and and I did shadow the fantastic Ken Bentley for three days just sat in and watched how he uh, did it and that was invaluable initially I thought oh god do I really have to sit here for three days <laughs> and watch Ken be brilliant but of course watching Ken be brilliant I understood uh, some of the top tactics that he uses as a, as a director and it was very eye-opening and yeah that I couldn't have really done it without having done three days of shadowing mm -hmm. so yes uh, it, it's all instinct Brent <laughs> <laughs> no qualifications at all <laughs> well let's go back to the beginning so how did you discover Doctor Who I always loved Doctor Who. I'm, I will confess that I am not a massive uh, fan in the way that most people at, at Big Finish are. You know, I couldn't tell you. It took me a long time to work, to remember which Doctor was which number. You know, <laughs> they'd say, do you want to write six Doctor? And I'd say, yeah. And then I'd have to go and Google it because <laughs> I didn't know which. Um, but you know, I always watched it. And I, you know, I watched John Pertwee and I watched Tom Baker and Peter Davison and uh, Colin Baker. So I was a, a regular watcher. 
And I've always adored science fiction. Everyone in my family is a science science fiction uh, fiend. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are lots of things connecting me to Doctor Who. Uh, I met Phil Collinson, actually, years before he became the producer mm-hmm. of the new series. He was a technician, like a stagehand backstage when I was in a production of My Fair Lady, and he and I became friends then, uh, just briefly while I was uh, doing the show in Bradford. And then years later, I saw that he was producing Doctor Who, and I thought, ah, oh, I wish I'd stayed in touch. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, lots of odd connections there. So what is it about Doctor Who that you find appealing? It's the... It's actually the humanity of it, isn't it? It's the fact that he is an alien with, and these two hearts are very symbolic. He is, is someone with the, the heart of a lion who is ultimately just trying to help. He's just trying to do good. And in the process of that, of course, it doesn't always go the way he would want, but his ultimate objective is be kind, be good, help, all the things that we should all be doing for each other. And in the and in the process of being kind and being good and trying to help, you could have an adventure. You can, could have an incredible adventure and change someone else's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the scope of it as well. I mean, the first time I was asked to write a Doctor Who, it was a standalone episode. Uh, I think it was The Taste of Death. It was a chronicle. And they said, yeah, set it where you want, make up any aliens you want, any era, any planet, you can make up anything. And I sat for two days in front of the computer and thought, it's too much to choose from. I don't don't know even what to choose. Um, And that's thrilling as well, um, that you never know where he's going to, when he opens the TARDIS door, you just don't know where he's going to end up. And how could that not be exciting, perpetually? Right, because, I mean... It's a wide open field. You can pretty much do whatever you want. You can even yeah. do different genres as comedy, drama, whatever. Yeah, yeah, or musicals as we did with the uh, the Pirates one and uh, Doctor Who and the Pirates. Uh-huh. So, yeah, yeah. It's a, and, and also in the world of audio, of course, we've got no budgetary constraints in terms of the effects and the, the locations. So you can blow up a planet and it won't cost you any more money. <laughs> So that's uh, incredibly freeing as well as a writer. Is there a particular doctor you'd like to write for that you haven't yet? I'd love to write for David Tennant, I think. I think they, they kind of save up those gigs for the, the real veterans. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I loved his doctor. Um, I did uh, write for Tom Baker, and that was thrilling. That, that was, uh, yeah, this year, at the beginning of the year, I, I finished a script for him. And to have their voice in your head for weeks on end, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just great fun. And it, and the voice gets stronger and stronger the more you work on the script until you think, oh, yeah, yeah, I know him really well. I feel like I know him even better now. I'm sure it's really uh, thrilling to have words that you wrote down that came out of your head and then see it come to life with with these mm. different actors and production. Incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. That's what I was feeling all the while I was writing for Tom. I was so excited because I thought, I'm going to go into the studio soon and I'm going to hear him actually say it. <laughs> <laughs> and it and it is. It never stops being exciting. And those studio days were, were so much fun and, and such an honour to have written those words and Occasionally, Tom will always say, "Oh, you know, you wouldn't, the Doctor wouldn't say this, or perhaps the Doctor would say it this way." <laughs> you yeah. know, and, in, and <laughs> none of us are ever going to say, "Nah." We all go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, do what you want with it." <laughs> <laughs> I can see clearly now the rain is gone. See that? That's what kills everyone. Any second now, it doesn't matter who you are, who you pray to, black or white, straight or gay, rich or poor. It's gonna be a bright, Yep, it's Judgment Day, the actual apocalypse. And where am I? I'm deep under the suburbs of suburbia watching it on telly. One minute now, one minute. Uh, these pictures coming live to us from Hubble. I know what you're thinking, cheer up, you're going to live, you're one of the lucky ones. My question is, am I? 
I mean, have you seen who I'm stuck here with? How the hell did I end up with these people? A few minutes ago, I was a dead man. Now, now I don't know what I am. Are we the future of mankind? I mean, seriously? It's time to brace ourselves to say goodbye. Thank you all for watching. I hope we'll meet again. So, uh, whenever we have someone on the show, we obviously talk about Doctor Who, but we know that that is not the be-all and end-all of your fandom. <laughs> so, we... We asked you to choose another show to talk about. So, Helen, which show did you choose and why did you choose it? Well, I chose You, Me and the Apocalypse from t 2015, um, which is quite a long time ago in the, the grand scheme of television. But I chose it because I remember it being so fresh. The writing was so unique and full of twists and turns. And, and there were so many points in that series where I went, oh, oh, my God. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> uh, and I loved the quirkiness of the casting as well. I loved that it wasn't just a team of beautiful people. It was, you had the fantastic Matthew Bainton, who I always think of him as probably one of those boys who at school was a bit geeky and a bit kind of a bit eccentric and probably didn't get much attention from the girls and then they grow up to be this incredibly enigmatic quirky uh very charismatic uh, actor as a lead actor I, I just thought he was fantastically original yeah did you watch this on first broadcast it was yes. one show a week oh yeah wow yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had to wait a week to see what happened next yes back in the old days yeah <laughs> <laughs> old school <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, and it's because uh, my life is so busy, and once you've got kids as well, I don't know if you, you have as well, but it's so rare that you can sit down and dedicate the same time slot each week to watching TV. But I was determined to finish that series. I wanted to know what the outcome was. Because it starts brilliantly. It starts with the ending. It's that classic um, plot shape where you've got the, the final scene in the opening and then the whole thing is leading up to how did this disparate group of people end up in this bunker under slough <laughs> all <Yeah>. together, <laughs> a mishmash of, of humanity. So, yeah, I had to see the conclusion. Yeah, I was so glad that you uh, suggested this because I, I had heard of it, but I'd never seen it. And ah, it, this is labeled a comedy, but I'm not a big fan of labels. Usually something is labeled a comedy or drama horror, but... Yeah, I feel like if the story is well written, it can contain all of those elements and still be believable. So Absolutely. To me, this show is is all of those things. So yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, there are some hilarious scenes like um, when Jamie has to give his friend Dave a suppository, and he, the aide says, "You've got good fingers for this," and he's like, "Thanks, I used to play the piano." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love stuff like that, and. And of course, there is a fantasy element in this series as well. There's a sort of spiritual um, fantasy edge. And my husband always jokes about the things that I choose to watch on TV. And uh, he says, oh, is it a little bit of sci-fi? Has it got a little bit of fantasy in it? <laughs> yes. yes, it has, because that's my thing. <laughs> so, yeah, it fulfilled all, it ticked all the boxes for me. Yeah, it's very funny. It develops very nicely many twists and turns as you said and very engaging and and gripping even uh yeah about halfway through and and i'm sad we never got a season two to tie up all the loose ends but yeah but then the end of the world had happened so <laughs> right <laughs> was there a particular character that you related to most Well, oddly, probably uh, Father Jude's sidekick. What was the name of that character? It was, oh, uh, Celine. Uh, yes, Celine. In that I'm terribly um, uh, not pious at all. I'm not a religious person, but I do like to do things, but I like to play by the rules and I like to do things the right way. And I felt like she was trying to do the right thing all the time. She had uh, integrity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, everything I do, I hope, has integrity, but often at my own expense. 
So yeah, that yeah, probably connected with her a bit. But of course, she goes completely off the off piece by the end as well, doesn't she? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And as far as myself, I would probably it would probably Jamie for me. But as, uh, as far as favorite characters to watch, that's a hard one because I I really enjoyed all of the characters in this show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I had to pick, I would probably say Celine and Father Jude. The storyline was my favorite. Mm. But the, <laughs> the spoilers, uh, three, two, one. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was totally gutted when he died. That was a big shock. Yes. Yeah, me too. Uh, but also, I didn't realize that uh, our white supremacist character, Leanne, mm-hmm. was Megan Mullally from Will and Grace. Right. I, Mm-hmm. I watched pretty much the whole series, and then uh, right towards the end, I looked at the actress and thought she looks so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> but the characterization, uh, and obviously the look was so different, it was a proper transformation. I-, I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant performance. Yeah, very much. And and her husband uh, Nick Offerman was in one episode as a cross-dressing guy. <laughs> was that her husband? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, there, there it is. Nepotism rules. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of big actors in here. Jenna Fisher, Rob Lowe, Patterson Joseph. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Diana Rigg, of course, right. is the sort of matriarch. Uh, yeah, I suppose you have to have those. Amer- I don't know who where the money came from to make that series, uh, but you have to have Americans, don't you, to sort of span the the market. So you've got Rob Lowe and um, Megan Mullally. They're your draw for the American audience. Yeah. And I'm sure um, this was shown on Sky TV first. And That's right. And then yeah. it made it so its way over here a few months later on NBC. Oh, okay. So I, th- I think it was a co-production. It must have been, wasn't it? Yeah, so there's... Yeah. There's the money. <laughs> yes, yeah, there is the money. And that's the, maybe the secret to when I write my TV script, which is pending, you have to write in a big American name. You know, you have to have one. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, it's hard to cross over. Well, I read that Sky TV decided not to make a season two for the narrative's sake, which was very different. Do you think they made, mm. do you think they made the right call or do you think we should have had a season two? I think there was something actually wonderful about just saying it is what it is. It, it is a genuine end of the world saga and the end of the world happens. And <laughs> we have to use our imaginations to, to think about how those, that group of, of people were going to exist for the rest of their lifetimes in a bunker. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do get irritated in a way when we have, series that promise uh they have a story arc and they promise a conclusion but of course they want to continue for series two series three series four and Mm -hmm. i think there's something rather clean and perfect about saying here's just a little perfect gem of a series and it is what it is uh and i think it's very bold to do that because of course it is about trying to make more money so they they bowed to artistic um integrity on this occasion i think yeah, I feel like when a series gets really stretched out over a few years, it sort of loses something. Yeah, yeah, inevitably. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I famously, I did toy with the idea of talking to you about Lost, but I was so angry, raging furious with the final episode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I still don't think I've got over it. So, but I did watch the whole of Lost. That's the only other series I've watched the whole thing of and um, and was waiting for this final episode and I was so angry about it, I couldn't speak about it for a fortnight afterwards. <laughs> Don't lost. It hasn't answered any of my questions. It's completely inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> so I've still not recovered from that. Oh no. So <laughs> if you knew the end was nigh, what would you do uh-huh. with what would you do with your remaining time, do you think? Oh, what a good question. Well, I mean, of course, you would want to be with your family. Mm -hmm. um, But what would you want to do with your family? You wouldn't want to sit in a bunker with them. Um, (laughs) I would want to be close to nature, I think. I would want to climb, go to Yosemite and and be in touch with nature or climb the top of a mountain and or go to Switzerland or somewhere where you just feel so connected to the energy of the planet. Um, But if I didn't have that option... Do you know, 
I was thinking about my I've got a big birthday coming up in a couple of years and and what I always want to do on my birthday is sing I want to perform mm -hmm. so I would want to I would put on a great big show starring me <laughs> 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 I'd make everyone sit and watch it for hours on end no I would, <laughs> I would just have a great fun performance and sing all the things I've always wanted to sing and say all the things I've always wanted to say and yeah, just be the, the, the technicolor version of me in my final hours. Yeah, I say the same thing whenever I, uh, someone gets in the car with me. I'm like, well, we're going on a trip, so um, you have a front <laughs> row seat to a concert starring me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to steal that line. <laughs> so uh, are there any upcoming projects that you can tell us about? Um, ooh. Uh, well, I am in the process of uh, creating another series. I, I can't tell you what it is yet, but it is exciting so that I'm producing again. Uh, and Louise and I are writing an episode each, so it's great to be working with her again. Wonderful to be working with her. Um, and what I've been meaning to do all this year, and I haven't had time, is to take two or three months off and finish my musical because I've been writing that for years and um, I've been part of a musical theatre association for, for a few years and every so often I go along to an open mic night and I sing another song from the show and people say, when is the show coming out? <laughs> <laughs> Just when I've got time. So I've got to make the time in 2020. Uh, so yeah, I will be writing my musical and Louise and I want to write a TV series together. We've got a great uh, plan for a series. So yeah, lots of really exciting creative stuff ahead. That sounds really fun. I can't wait, especially for a TV <laughs> series. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. I've been talking about it for so long. <laughs> so, yes, it will happen. It is going to happen, universe. <laughs> well, Helen, thanks for being on today. My pleasure. It's been fun. It's always fun to talk about me and things that I like. <laughs> <laughs> um, if anybody would like to get a hold of you or, or follow you on social media, where, where could they do that? Uh, you can contact me through HelenGoldwin.com. Uh, it's needs updating that uh, website, but there's lots of um, interesting media on there, some videos of songs and things and a bit of history about me. And on Twitter, at Helen Goldwyn. I think I'm the only Helen Goldwyn in the world because it's a made-up name. <laughs> it's made up um and uh on facebook it's helen goldwyn composer writer performer i think is what it is but just look up helen goldwyn you'll find me uh and i think that's it oh youtube um, soundcloud if you want to hear the songs on soundcloud go to hell gwyn h-e-l-g-w-i-n and uh, that's it helen goldwyn thank you so much for being on with us my pleasure thanks so much for asking me it's always uh, an honor and uh yeah, I, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Morning, ladies. Rise and shine. Uh, listen, I know you're wanting to stay off the grid and everything, but I really need to talk to my husband and son. You see, my husband, he's in the hospital, and I need to make sure that the doctors are still showing up for work. My son, I don't even know where my son is, so it's really, it's, it's very stressful. Rhonda, relax, okay? We have all the time in the world. Yeah, but we don't, do we? We have 33 days. And I really want to spend as many of those as possible with my family. You don't so. actually believe this apocalypse stuff, do you? We're in New Mexico, and D.C. is north and east. How come the sun is over there? We ain't headed northeast. I'm sure there's a perfectly... He said we're taking back roads, so maybe we're gonna go in odd directions? Or they're lying to you. We don't know jack squat about these two. How'd you know they ain't professional rapists? I don't think that's something you can get paid for. Man, you'd be better off on our own. I could steal us a car. We'd drive off in the sunset like Thelma and Louise. Okay, okay, you know how that movie ends, right? Brent, uh, I happen to know that you were, I mean, it was your idea to bring Helen Goldwyn onto the podcast. Was it everything you wanted and more? It was. It was. She was so nice, and I, I figured she would be. I've heard a lot of interviews with her and everything, and uh, very sweet. 
Yeah, she seemed like a real delight. Uh, I listened to the rough of the interview. I definitely was certainly jealous that I couldn't be a part of it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just there's she has such an energy. Uh, and you can tell this is an individual who has taken part in so many creative walks of life. And to be a part of that creative process and to have taken part of it in so many different angles you know like like to to be a writer and to be an actor and to be a director and a singer and a songwriter and a dancer i mean like all of these things uh that in, in well many of them i aspire to and many of which i terrify me completely um but to to get a chance to spend some time with her it's, it's a real treat yeah she's just she's just extremely talented and years ago uh i've been listening to big finish since they started Doctor Who, so 20 years ago, um, Sirens of Time and all those early ones. And she mentions in the interview about the Spectre of Lanyon Moore was her first one, and that's one of the early ones. I think it was like number six or something in the range. And, and um, I remember her on there and because she played three different parts because those were back in the days where they didn't really sure. have a whole lot of people at Big Finish and you know the same the same people were doing different parts over different stories and and um later on i think it was um storm warning which was paul mcgann's first story and she's in there and i thought who is this she is great and i remember looking up her name helen goldwin and it's just stuck with me ever since and so you know you see her pop up every now and then as an actress or a writer or now she directs uh she won an award for at a girl um just multi-talented and and there's videos on youtube also of her uh singing songs on on stage and uh, she even wrote a song about turning 40 called over the hill <laughs> oh really oh cool yeah and she sings it in front of her uh, family and friends that I, I assume it was her house that's on uh, youtube also it's really cool that's that's cool i you know i i regret to say that while i'm quite familiar with a lot of her work uh, i i I hadn't recognized the name. It wasn't something that I had um, paid as much attention to. I know that you've been listening for a long while, and I think you had said that you have quite a bit of the physical media, whereas I've downloaded a lot. And even though I absolutely treasure behind the scenes any anything, anything behind the scenes, it was just uh, hers was not a name that I, I knew, and now I do, and I'm looking forward to kind of exploring the rest of her her catalog so thank you for bringing her to my attention sure so let's talk briefly for about pulling faces um which i i had talked with louise jameson at hulanta uh, last year and she had brought that up um on several occasions in in her talks and it was one of those where i really wanted to get it and i waited in line to to uh, get a copy from her and to get it signed. Mm-hmm. And of course it was sold out by the time oh, I, uh, well, I mean, it, it always happens. I, you know, I'm, I'm usually the last to get in line. I'm like, no, 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 go ahead. No, go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead. And I always, always regret it. <laughs> so we get for being polite, but uh, it was very nice to, to sit and, you know, go, okay, now is the time. I'm devoting an hour to this. I really enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's something that, it's a conversation that I have been privy to, but it's not something that I have experienced myself. Right. Uh, and so it's nice to kind of get it in a concentrated script uh, and so well done. You know, when, when, uh, the interview continues after the the actual play itself, mm-hmm. and they said you know, that Louise Jameson's doing it as a one woman show. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought I I don't know how she would do it, uh, but I would love to see it. Yeah, yeah, and and there were lots of uh, nice little surprises in there too, like um, Colin Baker popping ah, up. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> as the as the plastic surgeon, that was hilarious. So, Drew, did you have a chance to watch? You, me, and the apocalypse? Brent, I did not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I- until we can get a technician uh, into our home to fix said technical difficulties, I'm afraid that my Wi-Fi and internet is spotty at best. And while you were very kind enough to get me a uh, 
a link to the show, I had to read the synopsis of all the episodes, which I did find quite fascinating, um, those that were available, and watch some YouTube clips at work uh, briefly on my lunch breaks, but I did not get a chance to actually watch a single episode. So maybe in some ways I was... I, I, it was a it was a good thing that I didn't get a chance to participate because I wasn't prepared in the same way. I mean, I'm never going to be as prepared as you are for for these, but uh, I I would have liked to have tried. <laughs> yeah, it was only ten episodes this time, so I I thought I could uh, could bust through that in about a, a week or two, and yeah. I did. And and it was it was a easily easily binge watching show. That's what it sounds like. I mean, just the enthusiasm you both had for it made me wish that I, I had watched it. And it's not something that I'm not going to try to watch. I, I certainly will go back and watch it. It um, It's not as easily defined, I think, right? Because it's not streaming uh, on it for free on any services. It's something that you had to purchase individually. Right. I had to buy it. And yeah. um, in the U.S., it's it was 15 bucks. Oh, that's not terrible. But, uh, no. And, and for what you get, I mean, that's a that's a great deal. Because it's very much worth uh, owning and watching over and over if you want it. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's something that um, once we're a little bit more situated in the home, that will be something I'll have to get to. Well, I'm glad you got a chance to get that interview done, and I'm glad that um, Helen Goldwyn took the time out. So thank you, Helen, for joining us. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. <laughs> Right, so what's the plan? I'm a fine job, whatever. Vaginal mother, is that the right? Birth mother, she's my birth mother. Yeah, right.